Changing places with Eichel. To the far circle. Back to Darlene. Eichel again. King's taking that shot lead away. Here comes a one-timer. Rebounding from... Right here, Darlene on the top side, moves it across to Eichel, the quick shot. Wrist aligning with the rebound. You are looking live at completely snowed in Buffalo, New York, here for the Sportscaster Season 9, Episode 3. It's only been a few days uh, since I was speaking with you last uh, for Season 9, Episode 2, which was awesome. It featured Richard Deitch and Justin Bourne from The Athletic. And I didn't mention this because I didn't know it. Justin Bourne's dad uh, played on the... Islanders dynasty in the 80s won four cups and he's married to Clark Gilly's daughter so we'll have to talk talk to him about that next time he's on but uh thanks to everyone who listened to uh season nine episode two uh this is of course Steve Bennett the sportscasters and we're back quick because I kind of got something special uh the the Buffalo Sabres are uh starting the second half of their season kind of the unofficial second half of their season tonight uh, after a pretty long break, they had their bye. Uh, each NHL team kind of gets a week off. That's part of the collective bargaining agreement, and the Sabres had their bye. And then the All-Star break happened, and uh, Jack Eichel and Jeff Skinner did us proud. They both got goals. Uh, Jack Eichel finished second in the fastest skater, which was really sweet. Led it all the way until Connor McDavid went. And I mean, we all know there's no beating that guy in a lap around the ice. I mean, his speed is just ridiculous. And I was actually telling Tammy that. You could probably give McDavid a puck, and he'd still probably beat everyone. He's so so damn fast. But uh, so after all this time, the Sabers are back. It's the second half. Uh, they got some help last night from the Penguins losing, and after all that, they're four points out of the playoffs uh, here as we get ready to to ramp up this second half, which will feature a seven game homestand. Uh, where the Sabres have been fantastic. And I think at the end of that seven-game homestand, we're really going to know where they stand. Here's what we're going to do today on uh, Season 9, Episode 3. Mike Harrington is a writer for the Buffalo News. And we we have been talking once a year or so uh, for like the last six years. And we've done it on this podcast. We've done it on the Lonely End of the Rink podcast with Adrian Dater. And uh, it's it's really since we've done it, it's been a uh, a really sad story, right? Uh, it's always about everything that's going wrong. And, and I remember thinking for a long time it was going to be this different this year. It's going to be about everything that's that's gone right. And then of course uh, the Sabers really struggled in December after that unbelievable November, uh, and have really quickly found themselves. Uh, from the top of the league to four points out of the playoffs. I'm still pretty optimistic and happy with the team. They're playing meaning- meaningful games for the first time after the All-Star break since like 2011 or something. Uh, so we're going to 
in a minute, we'll take a break and we'll talk to Mike. And it's about 50 minutes. And the nice thing is, is that's all we're going to do on this show in terms of interviews. Because I figured with it kind of being a national show at heart, uh, I didn't want to... I didn't want to pair it with something and kind of aggravate people if they, they're not in it for the Sabre stock. So what we'll do is we will – this is what we're going to do. We're going to run the um, the Harrington interview. We'll come back. We'll do a real quick book club update. Then I'm going to rerun the Justin Bourne interview from episode two. Just in case you didn't hear that one, we'll put the two hockey interviews together just kind of as a – just to get a national perspective on the league. That Justin Bourne interview from The Athletic will be there as well. And then I'll come back. I got a bunch of plugs I got to go through, including kind of a new sponsor of the podcast. Um, and then for one last thing, I'm going to give my Bob Seeger concert review, which I promised uh, on episode two. So we do have a lot to do today. We'll start with Mike Harrington now. I'm kicking myself a little bit because when I called Mike, he said, I'm on my cell phone. Does it sound okay? And of course, it sounded great. And he's like, do you want me to switch to that landline? And I said, well, it sounds fine. And then for like the first six or seven minutes of the podcast, he does break up a little bit. uh, But then it kind of stabilizes and he's fine the rest of the way. But I am kicking myself for not making him uh, go to the... uh, Go to the uh, you know the the landline. I should have. I don't know why I didn't. I'm an absolute idiot. So blame me for that. That's on me. I should know better by now. If a guy offers a landline, you should really take it. Uh, so I I shit the pooch on that. All right. So one last time. This is what we're gonna do for season nine, episode three. We are going to do Mike Harrington first. We'll do a real quick book club update. Then we'll rerun the Justin Bourne interview from last episode. And if you already heard it, you can just skip through it. But if you're here for the hockey and you want to get kind of a league-wide view after the Sabres talk, that'll be right there for you. And then we will finish with some plugs and one last thing on Seager. So all that's set. We're ready to roll. Uh, Let's do it. Let's take a break. We'll come right back with Mike Harrington. All right, our first guest today is a graduate of Canisius College in Buffalo, New York, and he is a columnist for the Buffalo News, where he also covers the Buffalo Sabres. He covers Major League Baseball, the Buffalo Bisons. He's a busy dude, and he does this with me every year, and I couldn't be more grateful. Warm sportscasters, welcome to Mike Harrington. What's up, Mike? Welcome back. How you doing, buddy? Steve, I'm doing fine. Uh, I'm doing a lot better than that hockey team I cover is, but... Uh... Happy New Year to you, and thanks for having me on again. And uh, it's it's been a a wild ride since October. Yeah, well, we were joking before we signed on that you know we do this once a year, and it seemed like for a long time this was going to be the first time where it was going to be a relatively positive conversation that centered around everything that was going right with the team. Uh, but we waited two weeks or so too long for that, and now if we centered an interview on everything that's going right for the team, we'd be done in five minutes. Yeah. Because there's nothing going right for them right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, no. I mean, it's been 
it's hard to think when you have a team that's won 10 in a row, and then you look at the big picture, they won 17 of their first 25 games. They've won only six. I mean, so now they're 23 and 23 through 46 games, but I don't think anybody could have imagined getting there in this manner. And the questions are just swirling all around about how much more are they going to drop? Are they in this race? Are they not in this race? It's really been a bizarre last few weeks. I think it was Eichel who said, and I think he's right, that they really need to stick together right now more than ever. And it's almost like these next 10 games are almost going to decide what you said. Are they in it or not? Because I think if they, you know, if they go two and eight in the next 10, I mean, they're going to miss the playoffs by 20 points. Forget being in the race. They're going to, they're going to go back into the Jack Hughes race, you know, if they're not careful. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's interesting what you think you about this. You just have to hang. Yeah. Because you get, you get through Calgary and then Columbus and Dallas just, Hang on, got seven home games in a row to start February. They've been much better at home if they can just hang on to get to that home stand. They'd still have a shot. And I think that, you know, I hope Jack Eichel's not going to play in that All Star game. He just he doesn't look right since he's been back. You know, he hasn't since he's been gone. He hasn't jump fired yet, and he just doesn't look like he has the same burst through the neutral zone. And you know, that's another thing. I think if they can weather the storm, like you said, and if he can get healthy and maybe rest up over that all-star break and they can get him going back where he was. But let's talk about Eichel for a second because he's had stretches in the season where he's been, you know, the best player in the league almost, you know, an MV, a legitimate Hart Trophy candidate for stretches in the league. He's certainly made Jeff Skinner a lot of money this year. I don't want to take anything away from Skinner, who's done plenty himself to earn that money, but I think that that connection with Jack has certainly revitalized his career and I think he's also shown really good stretches of leadership so there's been a lot a lot of really positives in Jack Eichel's season but it sort of feels like uh, this injury sort of derailed it a little bit what do you think about Jack so far uh, this year and um, what do you think is going to be most important for him uh, the rest of the season because I'm almost as concerned about him as I am about the team and I can explain why later but tell me tell me what you think about Jack right now well, I, I, I agree with you. I think it, he mirrors the team in a lot of ways. If you got to de- December 1st and you took a hard trophy vote, Jack was in the top, top five. No question of but next on down the impact. I mean, you know, I was doing what I like to say today. He came back from Christmas in St. Louis. They're 2-6-1 and one since they came back. And in that time... Sam Reinhardt has six points. Jeff Skinner has six points. Evan Rodriguez has four points. Vladimir Saboka has four points. Kyle Uckpo, Casey Middlestad at three points. Jack Eichel has one point since Christmas. Now, he missed three games, so he's only played in six games. These other guys have played in all nine. But in the Sabres' last nine games, Jack Eichel has one point. That can't happen. That's a big factor why this team has gone down. There's all kinds of factors, poor defense, the goaltending's falling apart, secondary scoring. But Jack Eichel has one point in the Sabres' last nine games, and I wrote the column in October, and I stand by it. This team goes as far as Jack Eichel can question. Jack Eichel came tremendously during those first 25 games. And this stretch now of horrific hockey, he can't have at $10 million a year. He can't have one point. 
point in nine games, and that's what he has. Do you think he's healthy? I, and don't don't say like, oh, if you're out there, I, like I get that part of it. But do you think he's 100%? Uh, no, I think he's healthy, and I think he's not 100%. Okay. <laughs> that's right. You're absolutely right. Okay. I, I don't think he has. But the thing is, is he doesn't look right, but it's an upper body injury. Um, it's nothing with the legs. It just seems like his game is off. Right. Um, you know, his shooting is off. It just everything is off lately with Jack. I don't know exactly what's going on there. Um, he, he doesn't look like the superstar that he looked like. It looked like he was having the Taylor Hall, Nathan McKinnon revival the first two months of the season. And that's all gone away now. He's not even in the top 15. I'd have to look. look at he might not even be in the top 20 in the league in scoring now. So it, it's really been a drop-off, and that's very alarming. Now, he has proven to be streaky throughout the course of his career. Um, you know, and, and But he also has proven to be a really great second-half player. So it has been surprising just to kind of watch him struggle a little bit. Um, but I do kind of believe that I still kind of put him in the in the category of things to worry the least about. Like in the end, I feel like Jack Eichel's going to figure it out and be a great player for this team. Um, you know, I'm a right. little bit more worried about the things that during the winning streak we would kind of whisper about and say, oh, is that sustainable? You know, all the one goal victories, the lack of secondary scoring, you know, and now we got to add the sketchy goaltending to it. Um, the defense obviously has been a concern all along. So I, I think I still kind of believe that Jack is going to be like Jack and Jeff Skinner and Sam Reinhardt. Like those guys are going to be fine and they're going to be what's good about the team. They'll figure it out. But I'm worried even more about that other stuff than I was kind of privately worried about it earlier in the season because, you know, Jack's hit a little slump and we haven't won a game. It's like, like you said, we're going to go as far uh, as he can take us and, that's alarming because there's just no one to fill in the gap if he has a bad night or two or nine, you know, right. And and you're right. Jack, Jack's listed under concerns. Jack's a concern. He's not a worry. Carter Hutton's a worry because you knew what you were getting. He's, He's coming off good years, but he was not. And now it is a big starting goaltender and things started out very well. And Carter Hutton was a big reason for that winning streak. You know, he won a ton of games in a row, uh, eight in a row, as a matter of fact. Three saves. And you look at it now, he dropped a little. He still had a 9-17. But now we're at, you know, well, it's obviously blown up from the Edmonton game, but we're at 8-41 in his January. Um, he's won two times in – He's won two times since Thanksgiving. Two games that he's won. And that's the difference right now between Hutton and Linus Allmark. Hutton's 14, 14, and 3. Linus Allmark has done really nothing but win hockey games. Um, And they're in a bit of a spot here because clearly they signed Carter Hutton. When you do that, there's certain promises made. And you're not going to yank the starting spot away from him in half a season. But Allmark's 9, 3, and 3 with a 9, 18 probably worthy of more games here. And, you know, it's a, it's a tough call for Housley and Botterill what to do in this situation. And it's not like Allmark's been, been great of late. I mean, he gave up five goals against Tampa. Um, it's not like he shut the door there. He gave up a couple last night or they didn't get any help. 
He was really good in Boston in the 2-1 loss. He was really good against Florida. He shut out Anaheim. But I do think they're going to have to, you know, really consider here going more to Allmark as this thing goes unless Hutton get his game back together. Let me ask you a quick Housley question. We'll get back to Hutton. Do you think Housley is a little guilty of um, being too generous to his veterans, too much of, oh, we made this, you know, promise to Hutton and Allmark, you know, still has to earn something or, you know, Scandella can't be scratched because he's a veteran and a leader. And, you know, we're going to call up the kid from Rochester, CJ Smith, but we're going to put him on the fourth line where he's not going to succeed. Uh, at least not as a scorer, because he hasn't earned a second-line role in the NHL yet. Like, do you think he's a little too guilty of things like that? Does that bug you about him like it does me, or am I being oversensitive there? No, it, it bugs me. I mean, a lot of coaches will scratch guys, and I get it. They scratched Lawrence Pilot last night because he made a terrible play against Tampa. Right, fine. I was fine Okay, with that. you want to yep. do it, it's fine. But then you've got to scratch Scandella when he makes a terrible play. When Scandella makes the play he made on the fifth goal in Edmonton, he can't play in Calgary. But based on practice today, he's going to be playing in Calgary tomorrow. Um, that's inconsistent. You know, the, the thing is, it's clearly veteran status and contracts are dictating things. Scandella gets paid. He's a veteran. Kyle Ocpozo gets paid. He's a veteran. You know, he certainly, at some point, you should have scratched Kyle Ocpozo when he went 20 games in a row without a goal. Right. Um, how much of that is Housley and how much of that is Housley worried about how the GM is going to perceive it? I think there's some of that going on. But, yeah, I think they're a little more old school on it than they should be. Um, they should be more progressive on it and play some of the guys that can help them win. I don't understand why C.J. Smith is back in Rochester. Um, all they did was when they played him for four games and he had real good analytic and got his first goal, they sent him back and he scores a hat trick in his first AHL game back. So I don't know what he's doing back there. So it's just a lot of weirdness like that with the lineup, and you never totally get the feeling that Housley's making these decisions. A lot of these decisions seem to be coming from from Botterill, and he, he's telling Housley, "Here are the guys on your roster. Now you use them as you want." But it's just there's just a lot of weird stuff there. I've never been able to totally put my finger on. Yeah, and I think that maybe the way that Casey Middlestat and Rasmus Stalin have been handled is maybe an indication of that as well, because he's been extremely patient with both of those guys. And I, I would agree with him to do it, but it is kind of inconsistent with how he's dealt with some of the other younger players on the team. Right, And middle stats should have been scratched a few times this year, but they don't have a lot of centers. So that was one problem. But there were games and there were stretches here where middle stat could have used a game up in the press box and taken a seat. Certainly not Dallin, but middle stat for sure. They haven't done it because he's their first-round pick and they traded O'Reilly. So there's a lot of... You know, I don't like to use the word political stuff going on, but that's the word, I think. There's a lot of contractual political stuff going on that's dictating the lineup. And, and you know, honestly, to give Middlestad a game here or there wouldn't have been a big deal. But I do kind of appreciate how patient they have been with him, and I think it will benefit him in, in the long run. And he is one of the guys I think I've seen the most growth throughout the season. I mean, certainly if you take Casey Middlestad night one and Casey Middlestad last night, which I thought him and Darlene were probably the two best Sabres last night, um, you know, it's a huge difference. I mean, and they know they screwed, they screwed up Middlestat too. They know that they overplayed him as a number two center, and they were trying to protect him. They had Berglund. They're thinking, well, maybe we don't need him as a number two center. And then Berglund couldn't play. And then Berglund went AWOL. So they know he's overmatched as a number two center, 
And like Howsley said the day before the Edmonton game, especially on the road where they can't get the matchups they want with him, he's really overplayed defensively. They're just trying to live with some of that. Right, and they're asking a lot of a kid who literally two years ago at this point was still playing high school hockey. I know it's Minnesota, but it's still high school hockey. I mean, you know. And I, I even made a crack in one of my columns. He made a ter- he made a terrible pass up the middle. I think it was in the Boston game. He made a terrible pass up the middle. And I even tweeted, you know, that would have been a bad play at Eden Prairie High, right? Let alone in the NHL. So he, he still has those moments, you know, where it's just not going to go right for him. He, you know, you're right. He's two years away from high school hockey, and here he is trying to play number two center in the NHL. It's asking a lot from him. I really think when he's 22 and 23, he's going to really benefit and really be something to see but there's some tough times there right now for him and i know i read the the story lance lysowski wrote in our paper today out about that he really was introspective about it saying i just i've never not been the best team player on my team and the best scorer and i've had to learn about patience and not scoring goals and that's what happens when you have a young guy in the nhl who's a little overmatched at times which is where middlestead is right now right he hasn't even played 60 games in his life against men yet Right, I mean, he only got about thirty. No. He only got about thirty games in college. Not like Minnesota made a great long run last year. I don't even think they made the NCAA tournament at all, if I recall. So, right, they got nosed out right at the end. Yeah, so I mean, he's not like he's a guy I'm willing to be patient for it because I see the I see the upside there. But again, I think we brought him up initially just to point out there is a bit a little bit of inconsistency there, and maybe it is just because of the lack of centers. But you know, he 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 seems to be getting the breaks and. You know, we can bring up Dalene in that as well. Dalene's much a much better player at this point in his career, but you know, he's a guy who when he does make a bad turnover, they just roll with it and and I think that he's also been better for that too, because he does almost more than anyone I can remember watching. You don't see him making the same mistake twice very often. He is a really quick learner. Has that been your general um And I like that there are times Yeah, there are times you see Dalene make a mistake on a shift and He'll get the puck back and correct the mistake on the same shift. Right. Um, yeah, his he recovery's is really forceful. He's really forceful in that way. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that they live together. You know, it's almost like they're the the next Reinhardt Eichel, general, like on the team. You know, is like a couple years ahead of them is in in high. Like it, it's like in high school, like or like a high school team or a college team. Like Eichel and Reinhardt are a little bit ahead of them, and they were the kids who were together a couple years ago, and now. Darlene and, and Middlestad are together, and, and I feel like you know one or two years from now, those four guys are going to be as good as anyone's core in the NHL. I really do believe that. Uh, maybe you know Reinhardt's maybe not quite at that level, but he's been he's been he's been making pretty good at this bridge deal so far. I think. What do you think about Reinhardt so far this year? Yeah, it's it's been his best year. I mean, he's mm-hmm. not he's not scoring goals, but the number there was a stretch. I think he had ten or eleven games and rolled out a goal. And in that stretch, he had 14 assists. So it almost didn't matter that he had gone 10 or 11 games without a goal because he was involved in the play so much, creating so much for Skinner and Eichel that it didn't make a big difference that the fact he wasn't actually putting the puck in the net. Um, we're seeing a lot more from him offensively. We're seeing that net front presence again. He kind of is what he is defensively, and there are games where he'll disappear a little bit or – He'll, he'll blow coverage in the slot too often still for my liking. He is, you know, three years, four years in the league now. But I mean, it's, a, it's a pretty good offensive year. Is he a number two overall pick? No. He's always going to have that label. That wasn't a great draft. That's no. who, where he got picked. 
Um, I, I think, you know, he's certainly not in the top seven or eight of that draft now, but so what? Um, he's a core guy. He got his bridge deal. It'll be interesting to see what they do in another year or two with him. But uh, they're getting a lot out of him this year. There's no question about it. And I think the issue with that line, too, is that you're always good. If you got one guy sucking up 30 goals, it seems like one of them's always going to have to. I mean, they can't all score, right? Like Eichel went through that period where it's like, oh, he's only got four goals, but he has you wouldn't think 25 so. assists. So, I mean, I'm... there's only so many pucks to go around, right? I mean, as long as that right. line's producing. Right. I, mean, I yeah. think I, I'm of the ilk that, you know, they've probably overplayed that line too long. I mean, even Colorado broke up their top line when they were struggling. Um, you know, Housley even said he's more into pairs, and the pairs clearly Icon Skinner. Right. So I've been thinking, why isn't Reinhardt playing with Middlestat? Um, you know, I know they're worried some about the defensive responsibilities, but that's the thing to me that I see is I don't know, I don't know what I would do on right wing. Maybe I would go back to Pominville again because that was the only production they got out of him when he was on that top line. Right. Um, if you had. Inner Eichel, Palmer, your second line was, say, Sheary with middle stat heart. Maybe that's your top six. I mean, Thompson's been in and out there. But to me, if you if you break up that top line, you might get a little more balance putting Reinhardt down. Um, you know what, though? <laughs> we can talk all we want about line combinations and balance. If they're as bad defensively as they were at Edmonton, and if they don't get more saves, it's really not going to matter. Yeah, let's jump back to Hutton for a second because, you know, especially during that that ten game stretch, his great his his performance on grade eight chances like he, for a while there he was number one in the league in save percentage on shots in the slot, and it seemed like yeah there was that one night he got caught behind the net and gave up a puck and like those goals were haunting him a little bit but he was really seemed like playing as well as you could have expected for who he was when we brought him in. And now it seems like just everything is going wrong for him. I mean, how many goals just in the last two games have went in off of one of his players? I mean, it's really been yeah, it's been incredible. I know. And the, the, how many pucks? How many pucks have popped out of his glove? He had the bad goal against the Islanders, you know. And I, and you, you used the word haunted, Steve. I really think Hutton is haunted. Yeah. By that goal he gave up in Washington, the goal on December twenty first with seven minutes to go in a 1-1 yeah. game where he got caught behind the net. I think that goal has really spooked him. I think he's been out of the net less, handling the puck less, which makes him less engaged in the game. And then we've seen the bad goals. I mean, the, the overtime goal against the Bruins was a terrible goal. He had made you know 38 saves to that point, but he gave up a terrible rebound in overtime. He, he had the goal pop out of his glove against the Islanders. He had the goal pop out of his glove in Carolina that Scandella knocked in. You know, and he's had some terrible puck luck. I mean, you know, think about it. He's had four goals going off defensemen in the last two games. Yep. But he's just not, not knaves, and it's a real problem to, to see him struggling like that because, you know, they're not getting the save they need at the key time, and that's, you know, an outgrowth of some of the differences from the streak. And now you're wondering – Who's your starting goalie? I don't think they wanted to have a question this season who their starting goalie was. I think they wanted Hutton to play 52 to 55 games and Allmark to play 26 to 30 games. And maybe they will still end up with that ratio, but right now everything's kind of up in the air. 
one thing about the streak that we were really cautious about was how many of the wins were one goal games. And if you look back now, Nine. yeah, and if you look back now, <laughs> at, yeah, if you look back now at the this bad stretch, it's a huge amount of one goal game losses as well. And I think we thought that that stat would correct to the mean, but it's really just went the other way almost completely. I got to hope that at some point these one goal games will balance off to some degree to some 60, 40 level, at least 50, 50. I mean, it has really been like, you know, 90, 10 to 10, 90 just overnight. It seems like. Yeah. You got a 10 game winning streak. Nine of the game wins were by one goal. Seven were an overtime or shootout. Okay. No one expects that to continue, but you're right. If you look at just take the overtime shootout record since the streak ended, uh, they're one in four in overtime and shootouts since the streak ended after going seven out during the streak. Yeah. And it's, uh, and if you want to look um, at those games too, the number of one goal loss and did one, two, I'm counting it right now. Six, seven, eight. They've had nine, one goal losses since the streak ended. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's completely turned around and everything has gone against them in that area. And if one goal wins aren't sustainable, you got to think one goal losses can't be that sustainable. Right. I mean, at some point, here, I'd like to see, you know, some kind of middle ground there. Let's talk about those overtime games a little bit because they've had nights where they've played. Like, let's talk about that Toronto game, kind of just coming out of the streak. Or maybe it was the first one they lost yep. or the second one they lost. I mean, they played a great game. It was an unbelievably fun night at the arena. It was this unbelievable battle between Matthews and Eichel. I mean, that was the peak maybe of Eichel's career that night. Um, you know, where he just comes out in a third period at home and scores two goals. And then for Matthews to come down and snipe on them like that, basically at the buzzer, I mean, that just felt so demoralizing at the time. And we talked about Hutton being haunted. I wonder if the Sabres as a team in general are haunted by some of the the way some of these one-goal losses have went down where they've played, you know, really well. I mean, even the Tampa game, which I guess didn't, the other night, which didn't necessarily end up, I don't, I think we lost by two in the end. But they played, you know, they played toe-to-toe with, Tampa and they were in a position to win and then there's this weird elbowing penalty which you know it's just it was a fluky play where you see why the ref called it but you could see why Jack didn't think he did anything and there's at least an argument for an embellishment there and in the end and now it's Stamco sniping on you with just this perfect shot to lose and it's like I just wonder if now go ahead yeah I mean I you know the, I, the, I got a funny story for you with the Toronto game yeah yeah the Toronto it. game you're, you're thinking you're going to the last few seconds get the game to a shootout the Leafs are coming down the ice and I'm just very calmly in the press box talking out loud saying tackle him tackle him and people are left la- yep. tackle him and Matthew Snipes shoot. goes under the bar and like then very calmly I said should have tackled him I mean there's under five seconds left in overtime why in the world wouldn't you just grab the guy who cares if you get a penalty you know to, to keep backing in and backing in like that Saboka was the guy backing in and I don't know who else it was but it was it was just dumb thought processes on the ice that moment to ever let them get a, a scoring chance at that moment, you know, and Matthews took advantage and he saw a forward there and Saboka's backing and just grabbed the guy. The buzzer's going to go anyway. So that was really, really a disheartening way to lose that game. That game should have been in a shootout, but you know, you look at the other games they've lost. They lost to Florida right after the streak ended in overtime. They lost the shootout to the Capitals. They lost the Bruins game in overtime when they had dominated the overtime, but Corral got the rebound. 
rebound off of Hutton. So they, they haven't done things well in crunch time, like you say. The Tampa game was tied. Actually, they led 3-2. to two. They gave yep. up three goals in the third after the, the, the Eichel penalty. So they really just they have to kind of correct some of these close games. And what are the factors in close games? You, you can't give the puck what guys are doing. you got to get some key saves from your goalie. And once in a while, you got to get a key goal from your top players. And, you know, sometimes they haven't got those key goals all of a sudden. And, and everything is kind of added up at once. Right, that Washington game that they lost in a shootout, that's the game where Sam Reinhart in the last minute, had the entire net wide open. and had the entire net, didn't put it in. Yep. You know, they've had a couple of these overtime games. They've had power plays. They haven't converted on the power plays to win the games. Skinner scored a couple power play goals to win overtime games during the streak. That hasn't been replicated now since the streak ended when they've had power plays at three-on-three three that have gone to four-on-three. So there are a lot of little factors that have added up here. I mean, they didn't win... Ten. I, I don't subscribe to the theory they won 10 games in a row on a fluke. Um, they won 10 games in a row because they made plays. And normally teams can't make all those plays every night. And I get that. But now what's happening is they're making none of the plays. None. Not one. So they're not winning right. any any of the games. Yeah. Right. It's they're not winning reversal. any of the games. Yeah. So, yeah, and it, you did not expect a complete reversal. And I think that's where Jack's quote is right on. They have to stick together, right? They have to sit down and say, everything can't go this wrong forever. Like, let's just battle tomorrow. Like, it can change tomorrow. We're not this team. Like, we're better than this team. And we might not be as good as that that team for those 10 games, but we're closer to that than this, right? I mean, that has to be the mindset. They have to. I think Jack's not Yeah, and right. I think they know. They know that people haven't turned on them. The fans haven't turned on them, really. It's nothing like the opener against the Bruins, obviously. The fans haven't turned on them. The media hasn't turned on them. You know, because if you looked at it, it's a weird season to figure out because if I had, if you had called me October 1st and said that in the middle of January through 46 games are going to be 23 and 23 and they're going to have 52 points to be three points out of the playoffs, everybody in town would have said, perfect. They're on the right path. They're improving. That's what they should be doing. It's just how they got here is what's disappointing because now they're in legitimate danger of creating some negative history. And if they end up with a 25-point improvement this year and have 87 points and miss the playoffs, you'd have said at the start of the year that's what they need to do. And now instead it's going to become negative history, negative footnotes, the first team in history to ever lead the league through 25 games and not make the playoffs, the second team in history to have a 10-game winning streak and not make the playoffs. So a 87-point season, we would have all said was a great job and a great improvement in October, is now going to be a failure, and it's hard for me to balance how to examine this season when you look at it from those standpoints. Right, and I think for me as a fan, I'm going to stick with my original expectation. My original prayer for this team was be in the hunt in March, play meaningful games, know what it's like to win again, have fun nights at the arena again, you know, get the city back, all those things. And I feel like it's impossible at this point for that that not to be the case. I, I mean, even if they miss the playoffs by 12 points or something, it'll hurt, but I still am going to walk away trying to cling to those goals that I set for the team before the season being accomplished. Let me ask you this. What would you do if you're Botterill? Would you stand pat and see if they can figure it out? Would you veer from the huge plan that you have a little bit and, and make a trade, a big trade? Would you try to make a small trade? What would you do if you were him? How would you handle the next 40 games or whatever. 
Well, he's going to get a lot of answers. He's going to get answers from this road trip. He's going to have some time off with the break and the all-star break and the bye. And he's going to have the Columbus and Dallas game. And he's going to have that big homestand before the, the deadline. So he's going to have a lot more sample sizes to view. But I just can't see – whenever you have a chance to make the playoffs, you have to try to do it. I can't see him standing pat. Now, he's not going to go for rentals. He's not going to mortgage the future and trade his first-round picks, I don't think, unless he really can get a guy with term left. But even – you know, to me, I'd like to see even a small hockey trade. You think of the Ducks and Dallas trade the other day. You know, the Ducks lose their 11th in a row. They come out, the GM, Bob Murray, says, I'm not firing Randy Carlisle, but he makes a hockey trade. He trades Andrew Cogliano to Dallas for Devin Shore. Just mix it up a little bit. A one-for-one trade with somebody. You know, something like that might help inject a little enthusiasm, inject a little something different into this team and get them out of the rut they're in. That's what I'd like to see Botterill do, but I know it's going to be tough. I mean, he got Jeff Skinner on a song, because, partly because Carolina had to trade Jeff Skinner. Other GMs aren't going to want to trade with Bottle. I'm not going to get taken by this guy, you know. So right, I, like I think had that Bottle's problem. in a tough – yeah, Regeer yeah. had that problem tremendously yep. after, the Dan, after the Danny Breer-Chris Gratton trade. Then he started making terrible trades. But for a while, nobody wanted to trade with Darcy. They were worried they were going to get fleeced. Um. You know, I, I just cannot see them standing pat. If you stand pat, you're admitting you didn't want to go. And the thing is, you know what? I get that this wasn't their plan. Their plan wasn't to be first overall at Thanksgiving. Their plan wasn't to be fighting for the division title. But you know what? Things change. If that wasn't your plan, too bad. You know, the Bills' plan wasn't to make the playoffs. They made the playoffs, so this year was a big step back. The Sabres' plan wasn't to win 17 in the first 25. But if that's what happens... You change. I mean, did the Vegas Golden Knights think they were going to be in the Stanley Cup final last year? No, they thought they were an expansion team, a good one, but their plan changed. They went out at the deadline, they added, they tried to win the Stanley Cup. You know, if your plan changes, you have to adjust. And that's what I'm going to be watching for Botterill coming up for these next few weeks. Does he adjust? Because clearly the plan is different and the circumstances are different than he would have thought going into the season. What do you think Phil Housley has to do? the rest of the way. It's basically the same question as Botterill, but what, what do you feel like Housley has to do to solidify his role as coach? I'm with you 100%. They need the stability. There's no reason to run him out. I think he's been really good at times this year, especially in in-game scenarios. You know, little adjustments like off the top of my head, I can think of the Montreal game really early in the season where he slides Akpozo into the point spot on that late power play. Akpozo gets the game-winning goal. You know, he's made good right. little in-game adjustments like that. I think he's been more than capable, I think he's an easy scapegoat because people love Jack Eichel. People, we've this city, you know. I know everyone loves to say, "Oh, it was all about McDavid." Of course, it was about McDavid, but it was about Jack too. And we invested a lot of emotional energy into getting him here. And people love Jack Eichel. People don't want to exactly pile on him. You know, people have fallen in love with Skinner. People don't want to blame him. You know, people jump for joy when we finally won a lottery and got Dalene. He's not going to, you know, it's like the blame is falling to Housley. He's an easy one to, to poke at. Uh, but what do you think he needs to do to kind of solidify his position, to keep gaining confidence and to improve as a coach? Cause he's only in his second year as a head coach. I mean, it's not like he's Babcock. You right. Know I mean? now, and, and, the, and the thing is everybody piles on Housley. The nightly referendum on Housley tires. Yeah. It's absurd. There isn't a nightly referendum on the coach in other cities. It's ridiculous to me. It's an 82 game season. It's not the NFL. And everybody forgets who is the guy who blew everything up at practice 
on October 19th and changed all the lines and created a 13-2-1 run. It was Phil Housley who changed all the lines in the defense pairs and got this team going after those two games in Vegas and San Jose. So Housley set them up for the major run that kind of revitalized hockey in this town. So now everybody's piling on Housley. Um, he needs to, I think, manage the goaltenders a little better, have a little better feel. Like, like to me, I don't even know what Twitter's going to say tomorrow. I don't even know if I want to look at Twitter tomorrow <laughs> when Scandella's in the line. You know, to me, Housley's got to have a feel. Scandella should not play tomorrow. I don't care how terrible you think Matt Hunwick might be. I'd play Matt Hunwick tomorrow, and, and, and I would sit Scandella and Boilu. Um, but I don't think they're going to do that. But I, I think Housley needs to have more of a feel for stuff like that. Um, he might, you know, he's trying with the lines. People say, oh, he's moving the lines too much. Well, what's he supposed to do? He can't do the same thing. You know, is it Phil Housley's fault that Kyle Ocposo went 20 games without a goal? I mean, there are certain things that just aren't the coach's fault that everybody wants to blame the coach for all the time. So uh, there's some of that going on, you know, and, and, you know, Housley's done a good job managing the star player here. And Eichel, the problem I have with Eichel is Eichel is untouchable in people's minds. I mean, let me tell you, Steve, there's a lot of chatter in this league. Eichel's drilled two guys from behind this year and was lucky in both counts that there weren't reviewed by player safety. One of them was Ryan McDonough in Tampa, which is why the people in Tampa were pretty annoyed with the elbow that everybody in Buffalo freaked out about Saturday night because it was on Ryan McDonough again. There was chatter around the, the lightning locker room after that game wondering if Eichel was going to get suspended for that play. Oh, God, please. And when I, and when I dared to even say, well, it looked like an elbow and had people savaged me on social media to the point where it was laughable. I mean, the way the concussion setup is in this league and this lawsuit's going on, anybody gets hit remotely in the head, there's going to be a penalty call. Now, I think McDonough embellished that one a little bit. But every referee in the league is going to make that call in that spot. And people lost their minds because it was called on Jack Eichel. There's nah, no other explanation it was for the, the emotion. It was the emotion. Other than it was game. on Jack Eichel. No, nah, it was the emotion of the game. The moment. It was. It was the moment of the game. It, no it, one remembered that the Sabres had five power plays in that game and Tampa had one. It was all the referees hosed Jack Eichel and hosed the Sabres. It was the most ludicrous reaction from people. And people just had to be... People lost their minds for no reason. Right, I see so why here's it was the called. situation with Eichel with how with absolutely yeah. You I have see why to it was understand called. why yep. it was called. And people are breaking it down frame by frame and sending me stills, and I'm like, watch the game at full motion like the referee does. Right. I see why I call every referee is going to call that every time. Yep. Period. And and McDonough did a good you job know? to get and himself. I mean, I, I mean, McDonough leaned right into it. McDonough went from standing up sure to bent over. I mean, he did a great job to get draw that call. So I mean, it's... and you could have easily given McDonough to me easily. They they could have called Eichel for elbowing and given McDonough an embellishment penalty. Yep, they no, could I have. I, and they, they didn't, and but they, they didn't. It's fine too. I, I wasn't flipped out about it, but I, you know, I also <laughs> to be to right. think that someone would think he should be suspended for that is ludicrous. I mean, I'm not. I'm still not convinced he did too, it. But you know what? The, the first McDonough there one, been I no reaction seen. whatsoever. There had been no reaction whatsoever if that penalty was called a Kyle Oposo. Let's be honest. None. Now, he would have said, oh, at stupid this, penalty, In the same situation? The the you don't think right. that – I think the situation played into it a little bit. 
the time and the period, the team we're well, playing. Well, the situation played in, yeah, the time and time and score for sure. Yeah. But all I'm saying is, if if the same play happens and it's Akpozo, people are going to say, oh, what a stupid penalty Akpozo right. took in that." Spot. More blame on Akpozo, less on the you refs. Know? Right. More on Akpozo, left on on the refs. Right. But I think I understand. Yeah. Like I tried to explain to you where that comes from a little bit. So I know you're a little bit detached as a fan. You have to understand how much in, in emotional investment this city has in Jack Eichel. I mean, it's almost as much as any athlete in this city besides Jim Kelly. You know, like Jim Kelly spurning this city and then yeah. finally being lured back. That's the like closest I can think of to how emotionally invested we were as a city into just getting this guy here. I mean, we literally... Humi- but they're not perfect. They're not. He's not they're perfect. They're not perfect. Jim Kelly threw interceptions, didn't he? Oh, of course. So but- when they make mistakes... And when they make mistakes and we point out that that was not a great play for Eichel to make, people lose their minds, and it's kind of laughable. It's kind of laughable to me. People lose their minds over it. I mean, Housley's done a good job with Eichel. I think Eichel really likes playing for Housley. I think the respect Housley has for being a Hall of Fame player is there, and I think Eichel really likes that Botterill found him a winger. Eichel's been just tremendous this year as a leader, as as a spokesman in the locker room. Um, Jack Eichel at age 21, 22, you cannot believe what a different guy he is from age 18, 19. And that's just something you see normally in life, but we really see it here. And, and people have to understand there's a lot of things on Jack Eichel's plate. And you know what? It's just unfortunate that this is the way it is in sports. He's going to get all the criticism and he's going to get all the glory. And right now, Right now, Jack Eichel's lack of production is a problem, and it's one big problem for this team. And they have to fix that. And he, you know, you wouldn't tell, be telling him anything he doesn't already know. No, you know that's what he, I really like. I really like about Jack Eichel. The fans might protect Eichel, but Eichel doesn't protect Eichel. He's one of the first ones to to say I need He's to be not, better. Right? He's, well. Absolutely, absolutely. He he does not. He does not look for excuses. He does not try to weasel out. There are games where there's no one in the dressing room after a game. He'll sit at his locker waiting for the media. I mean, people have to understand how much of a stand-up guy this guy has become. And he's still 21 or whatever. I mean, he's still very young. Right. I mean, he's still got, right. he's still got a ways to go on and off the ice. You know, I mean, I mean in the sense that he's, he's still not at his peak. You know, he's going to get better and better you still. Would, you, would think, you would think he's not at the – you would think the peak is still coming. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, you know, I, I do think that you would find this in star players in, in many. I mean, I am a huge New Orleans Saints fan. I've been since I was seven years old. I mean, I have never seen Drew Brees make a mistake. Okay, I'm sure he's made them. But, <laughs> but I don't admit them. Okay, right? Like, right. the first play of the playoff right. game the other day, there must have been a hole near, in the Superdome in the roof there that kind of knocked that ball down to, to cause him to underthrow it. You know what I mean? I don't think right. Right. It was just the, the underthrown ball. Right. It was a that fan set there. the tone for the Eagles to take a fourteen nothing lead. Not right? Breeze's fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> just wasn't. You know, like I, <laughs> right. So I think that that that's just part that that's I think one of the things of being a star and especially being one again. If you think about how Drew Brees came to New Orleans, you know, in 2006 when the city was literally boarded up, you know, and he decided right. to come there. You know, there's an emotional and emotional investment and you're also talking about a guy who's literally made every dream I have as a sports fan come true you know like he's and he's done it without ever embarrassing me without ever making me have to make an excuse for him off the field which is so tricky in that league right um but um yeah 
I th- he got to a Super Bowl and he's gone deep in the playoffs. And you're right, the frustration now, not just for the fans, the frustration for Jack Eichel is, you know, this is year four and he's yet to be in the playoffs. And they were hopeful they'd be in contention this year. And they got to December 1st and you're thinking, well, what's their matchup going to be? They were a lock. They were 10, 11 points in the playoffs. And now that lead has dissipated. And now we're going to see how Jack Eichel and his whole team reacts to that adversity. Because this is major adversity here. Because everyone is talking about how they were one of the big stories in the entire league. And now they're looking at a lot of negativity here. And let's see how they bounce back. Because the one good thing they have in their favor is they have time. We're talking there's still 36 games left. They have a lot of time to get this thing turned around. And they're right there. And the other teams that are there aren't great teams. Like Montreal's not a great team. They've played nope. pretty well, but they're nope. They could easily go zero and nine at some point. Would would it shock you if Montreal had a skid? If the Islanders had a skid? Like no, that wouldn't shock anyone. No. Yeah. Uh, the sports guests are here with Mike Harrington from the Buffalo News, finishing up. You know. Yeah. No, I think look at as a fan of this team, I'm still half you know glass half full guy. Um, and I understand. I guess maybe some people who are the other way, um, but I think you're just cheating yourself if you're that way. Like I still think you got to find a way to have fun with this, right? Like even though that, and I still think there's a seven wins, there's a seven wins in ten games three coming here. Right. So don't be the one not who has to look play... foolish. Don't be the one who has to look foolish and jump back on right. at that moment, right? And they're not. They're not going to play for the next thirty six games, and not going to continue to play at a sixty point pace for the season. There's a seven wins in ten game streak coming that's going to get them back into this thing again. It just it just seems unfathomable to me that they're going to go on this sixty point pace for what would turn out to be the final what fifty fifty five games of the year. That just seems inconceivable. Too much talent here. Do you think they will make the playoffs? No, you- I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. I think they're going to end up. Around what I thought at the start of the year, I think they're going to end up about 88 points, 88, 89, 90, and they're going to miss. But I do think they're going to play games in March that will still be meaningful. And I, I just, you know, the trade deadline might say a lot, but I just don't think they're good enough defensively. You know, now the goaltending question is up. Um, and these other teams are going to add, and, you know, and they're starting to fall behind. And, Things don't feel right right now. The vibe isn't great, but I still think they're they're going to end up in that high eighties, and we'll see. Uh, what 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 needs to be the the final story of Jack Eichel for you to feel like this season was a success? A season where you think he earned the ten million, where you think he took the necessary step forward in becoming the player that we dream that he'll be. Is there a certain? Mm, he's pretty close already. Yeah. He's pretty close already. He's not going to go another nine games at one point. Um, but, you know, if he ends up with, you know, so he, let's say he doesn't miss any more games. So that means he'll play 79 games. He goes the rest of the way. If he has an 80 to 85 point season, he's a point a game guy. That's a pretty good year, you know, and you know, he's ready to take another step. I, I, I do think, you know, you'd like to see Jack become a 37, 38 goal guy maybe he's not going to be especially this year since so many of his points were setups for skinner which is okay because he struggled with goals for a while but you know i want to see jack be that point of game guy and get into that 80 85 point range i really think that would you know mark it as a successful season for him even if they don't make the playoffs all right mike what do you want to plug i know it's buffalonews.com 
uh, at it's at by I'm Harrington on Twitter. Uh, of course, by I'm Harrington. And the other thing we need people people need to realize, you know, we we added a new first round draft pick in November. We brought in Lance Lysowski from Pittsburgh to cover the Sabers as well. You can follow him on Twitter at Lysowski. I certainly retweet a lot of his things. He's done a a super job for us, a super addition. There's a lot of you know faces in the media landscape in Buffalo, and there's a lot of shifting around, but. He, He's done terrific work for us, and he's actually out in Calgary on the trip right now. And it's somebody, you know, as much as possible, I'm trying to get people to make sure they follow him and on Twitter as well because he has a lot of interesting viewpoints on the game. And, you know, there's games that he's at that I'm not at. So people need to really follow him and, you know, you know, support his work as well. And we appreciate everyone's support. It's been a tumultuous time for us, shall we say, but uh, – you know, as Shakespeare said, rumors of our death are greatly exaggerated as we continue to give people some of the best hockey coverage in Western New York. Yeah, and Lance wrote that great piece on Skinner, kind of a background profile piece, which is really good. Um, Absolutely. So, I mean, the whole figure skating background yeah. of Jeff Skinner really really opened the window of the world to a lot of people about the way he's able to maneuver on the ice, on the edges of the skates, which you see, and you didn't understand how he did it. And his figure skating background, Lance really delved into it. It was a very interesting piece. And also, you can still buy the Buffalo News. They still print it. You can go to the store and, and buy one if you'd like. How about that? They yeah, that. I mean, uh, you're still t- you're you're still talking over a hundred thousand copies every single Sunday of the year, and uh, it's still there. The great great work we have. Tremendous page designers, tremendous photographers, tremendous color, and you know, it's still it's still one of the best design papers in the country. They won a lot of national design awards for. Well, I look forward to doing this every year, Mike. Uh, if they do make the playoffs, we'll have to kind of get a part B in just to kind of talk about what went right. And if they don't, we'll just skip, Absolutely. we'll just skip what went wrong because there'll be plenty of people doing that. <laughs> but uh, th- yeah. thank you so much for, for the time. And uh, we'll talk again soon, hopefully. All right, Steve. Thanks for having me. Could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering down She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high I want to thank Mike Harrington For being on the Sportscasters today Always love talking sabers with Mike I love setting him straight on Jack Eichel too Mike Harrington's a really smart dude. He knows that Jack Eichel sells papers, right? Gets clicks. So if there's a chance for him to pile on Jack Eichel, he does it. And it's smart. He is no dummy. Uh, and I love pushing back on that a little bit because I love Jack Eichel. Uh, and he means a lot to me. And I think he means a lot to this community and certainly means a lot to the Sabres. Real quick book club update. Like when I said it was going to be quick, it's really quick. Uh, the book that we are working on right now is called Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football forever. This is by Bob Letterer. It's a book about the guaranteed Jets team. Uh, it's the 50-year anniversary of them beating the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III. Uh, and I am going through it as best I can. I'm kind of in a, I'm kind of in a mood where I, I, the football and me are just not you know hand in hand right now. I uh I just can't do much football. 
but beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed for football forever, uh, it, it's by Bob Letterer. Check it out. We'll have Bob on maybe next week, maybe the week after. I got to reach out to him because he had reached out to me to see if I got it, and I just haven't run him back yet, which is a terrible job by me. But that's the book. I reached out to uh, I reached out to Adam Seppenwall or Alan Seppenwall, excuse me, who wrote a book called The Soprano Sessions, which has completely sold out of its first print and is going to second print. And I would love to have Alan or his co-writer on. Alan is not easy. Uh, he is really difficult to book. I have no idea how to get a hold of his partner. So I emailed Alan, and I have my fingers crossed that maybe we'll be able to do something with the Soprano Sessions, but I'm not counting on it. We did do something with his book, uh, TV the book, and it was great. And then he put out a Breaking Bad book, and I sent him like seven emails and just never heard back. Uh, so I will stick on Alan for a bit and see if we can do something on Soprano Sessions. But if not, well, not. All right, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, I'm going to replay the Justin Bourne interview from the last episode just because I think it fits really good, right? We did that Sabres. We did 50 minutes on the Sabres, and now here's about 25 or 30 minutes on the rest of the NHL. And we also, uh, Justin played college hockey at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And uh, we can talk to him for a second about his experience there, uh, which is really interesting, why he chose to go that route as a Canadian kid instead of uh, major junior, uh, which I think is really interesting. And that's at the very beginning of that. And then after that, I'll be back. We'll do some plugs, and we'll do one last thing. So let's take a break. We'll come back with Justin Bourne. UAA, UAA, we are the Seawolves and we're ready to play. Shout it out for Tugash Mountain. Shout it out for UAA. Come on out for the party. Because the Seawolves have a game to play. There's something about the Our next guest played college hockey at UAA, the Seawolves. And he's making his first appearance on the podcast today. He's a senior writer at The Athletic. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Justin Bourne. What's up, Justin? How you doing, man? Thanks for, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, not a problem at all, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was looking over. You've uh, got a really interesting background, I feel like. It seems like for a young guy, you've been everywhere already. BCHL player college hockey player, working video for teams, on TV, writing for The Athletic. You've really done a lot already. Let's start with uh, let's start with being a Canadian kid and taking the college hockey path. I'm just curious, um, the last couple of years, we've finally seen some college hockey players break through on the World Junior Team. Uh, McCarr played last year. Bowers played this year. Uh, there's been a few others. Obviously, Jonathan Taves played um, – way back but it's been difficult um for for the junior for the college hockey players to break through uh and and even on the u.s side it's been a little bit difficult for the um like the u.s hockey team this year only had three players from from major junior um so it seems like different philosophies on the opposite sides of the border sometimes uh tell me a little bit just briefly about you as a player and why the college hockey path made the most sense for you 
I think at some point you have to be realistic with yourself. And, um, you know, I was a decent, um, you know, youth hockey player, you know, minor league player uh, as a kid. enough, But, you know, I played in sort of a small town, uh, well, it's not a small town, but Kelowna, BC is, is not huge either. And I never made any of the top tier teams. And kind of as I got a little bit older, uh, I guess I was a bit of a late bloomer. And started to see that maybe there was some potential that I could do more beyond, you know, once I got to, to be around 14, 15, 16 years old. And, um, you know, I never really saw the NHL as a realistic goal. Like, the path that these guys are on who make the NHL are so good, so young, it's it's scary to think about. And I wasn't that. So, for me, it was like, well, okay, you know, I love to play. I'd love to play more. And what could I gain from this? And I knew I wanted to go to university. And so that that kind of became my goal at a young age. If I could get a college scholarship, you know, that would validate all the money and time my mom and dad put in, uh, into it, and you know, buying my gear and taking me to the rink and, and all that other stuff. So uh, I set my sights on college hockey, and you know, I had some uh, unique opportunities. Um, you know, you know, looking at my university options, I had about five or six scholarship uh, options. And I chose to play for a team that wasn't necessarily the best. In fact, they were, I'll just say it, they were bad. But it was in a division that played great players. And I thought that gave me a chance to develop. And uh, over my years in the WCHA, uh, I played Jonathan Taves and uh, Kyle Opozo and Blake Miller and uh, Thomas Vanek and, and a lot of players who went on to great success in the NHL. So it was a worthwhile experience for me all around. Very happy with the, the path I took. What were some of the other officials you took? What's that, sorry? Some of the other official visits. You said you had about five offers. What? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I went down to the University of New Hampshire, which would have been awesome. Um, Colorado College, Niagara University. Uh, talked uh, extensively with Bowling Green. Um, you know, at the time, they were even Quinnipiac a little bit. At the time, they were all differing levels of, of power, I guess I should say, in terms of what they meant. Uh, you know, Quinnipiac is, is a big school, and at the time, um, the, the joke was, uh, it was called quit and pack it up. Like if you took your career there, that was where you just quit and pack it up, man. It's over. So you know, things have certainly changed with a lot of these schools. Uh, the one I really wanted to go to and no offense to the university of Alaska, which I ended up going to, uh, was New Hampshire, which is a really great school in hockey East. Um, but sometimes it just comes down to what you think your opportunity is going to be. And of course, money's involved too. And, I had a full ride opportunity from Alaska and New Hampshire. It wasn't going to matter. I wasn't going to get the opportunity to have success. And I played top line minutes um, at Alaska from my freshman year on. So I, I gave myself the best uh, possible chance, I think, to, to have the most success in my career after that by not going to New Hampshire. One more thing on this, and then uh, we'll move on. One thing I thought was pretty interesting listening to you talk is it seems like you kind of viewed this all as college hockey made the most sense for you because of where you lined up as a prospect. Do you think that if you were someone who you felt projected out to an NHL career, you would have played major juniors? And do you think that that, that kind of, that kind of thought is kind of fading a little bit? Whereas, you know, maybe 10, 15 years yeah. ago, that was that if you, you felt like you were being an NHL player, you had to play junior major junior where now, you know, it's almost up to 40% of the NHL is college hockey players. Uh, so not quite as important. I mean, we have guys like Jack Eichel play college hockey, and then you have undrafted guys play college hockey. It's like the, the gamut of of who plays it now is, is a lot wider, it seems like. Would you agree with that? Yeah. The way I see it is just sort of uh, where you're at in your development path. Like, 
you know, some players are so good, so young, as I was saying, just that, you know, major junior makes a lot of sense for them. They're playing, you know, NHL style, North American pro hockey at a young age. I know it's not technically pro hockey, but it's very, it's replicated, right? They're building them to be familiar with um, NHL hockey. So yeah, if you're a special player young, major junior makes a lot of sense, but you know, a lot of people need more time and more seasoning and that's okay. And you know, the, it seems to me that the development path that, uh, you know, Hockey Canada, maybe uh, the U.S. is similar to this, is that they're trying to create superstars. And the superstars need to be pushed through the systems fast and play above levels and dominate levels that their age dictates they shouldn't and, and all that. But, you know, when you look at guys like, I don't know, I just think of like a Tyler Bozak. You know, he's added a lot of value to a lot of hockey teams, and well, mostly Maple Leaf teams, right, and made a lot of money at it. So it depends what your goals are. You know, I never was going to be Sidney Crosby. So for me, it made a lot of sense to have more time, more opportunity, more years to work on my game, develop, get bigger, and and see what I could become. So, yeah, it's just to me where you're at in your career when you're making these decisions. And Jack Hughes is really interesting, basically, and what you just said, too, because, I mean, he's a, a potential first overall pick, probably not worse than second overall pick. And I know last year he basically had done almost everything you could do at the development program and wanted to, I think, graduate early and play at Michigan with his brother, but couldn't cram in enough academics to to do that and just decided to go back to the development program anyway. Um, so I think he's been a really interesting case of a top-end player who has kind of stayed firm in the U.S. side of the border and um, you know, not rushed himself into playing somewhere maybe where he didn't feel as comfortable just because maybe it did make the most sense because there wasn't necessarily anywhere for like when he didn't when he when he found himself not Michigan not being an option this year, I was really surprised he didn't end up pro somewhere or, you know, playing I, I guess I'm sure he's an OHL kid, I'm guessing. Um but uh yeah, he's been interesting, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, those options vary uh, a great deal. And when you're that young and that talented, uh, it has to be really tough to make those choices. And, you know, just going back to my own experience, it was like, wow, I can play against Jonathan Taves, you know, and, and potentially get better. That, that for me, was what made sense for, you know, for Hughes. My God, I mean, the, the world is oyster. And you, know, you see people saying right now, uh, you know, I'm not sure if he's, you know, if he's quite ready, if he's physically strong enough to play at the NHL level. You know, whether that's true or not, he has so many options. I mean, you have to kind of love what Austin Matthews did by going overseas and playing against, uh, you know, older men and seeing if he could stand up, uh, you know, to that size of player. So uh, very interesting to see what path uh, Hughes ends up taking. You kind of broke into the uh, media side doing some freelance writing stuff with Puck Daddy and a few other locations. Uh, when did you decide that covering hockey was – and I don't really mean like, oh, I'm not going to be a player. i got to cover. Like, I, I, I sort of mean what was it about – what was the point and, and, and what, was the, what was the path you were kind of carving out for your side when you said, all right, I'm going to start doing some hockey news, some Puck Daddy, some USA Today, kind of break in right here, right there. What, what, were, you, what were you thinking at that point? Well, a lot of it was triggered by a, a pretty significant incident in my life. You know, I took a slap shot to the face, um, you know, and so I was on, on the couch for three, you know, two to three months in wires, basically. So, um, you know, essentially what I had to do 
was kill time. And so I was writing emails back and forth with my uncle, who was a uh, sports uh, writer at the time. And he was like, you know, the emails were long. I had time and I was drinking liquid Percocet and feeling great. So I wrote really long emails. And he was like, he was like, yeah, really interesting. Like, you should start a blog, like, just to kill time while you're sitting on the couch. And, um, you know, so I did. I started a blog and started writing. And I guess, you know, it wasn't even my own decision, uh, decision so much as I learned that there weren't a lot of players um, who were actively playing, who were, you know, literate. And I had been through four years of uh, university. So people had uh, interest in what I had to say. And obviously it didn't hurt that my dad and my, my then fiance, now wife, uh, wife's dad is a hall of famer. So people had interest in what I had to say. So it kind of took off pretty quick. And um, I started to think about transitioning. You know, I was realizing I probably wasn't going to make it. I had another NHL opportunity uh, for a tryout after that, but you got to be honest with yourself. And I, I wasn't going to make it. I, I was, I wasn't good enough. And uh, I didn't want to let hockey go because you have a lifetime of education and particularly myself growing up around an NHL family, my entire life has been immersed in the game. So I thought it'd be a shame to just go sell, you know, I don't know, washing machines or something. Like I felt like I needed to use my education and then the media side uh, seemed to allow me a little bit of a leg up on other people just in terms of, you know, the information I have and the knowledge I have. Did you kind of feel, I know like when my brother was picking his schools and ultimately picked Yale, you know, his thought was, you know, you want, he wanted to set up both ends. You know, if he wasn't going to make it in hockey, he wanted to have the best chance to make it without hockey. And then when he ultimately did graduate as a senior and he had broken his leg his senior year, he had plenty of opportunities at the lower levels, but he's like, I just don't want to ride a bus as a, you know, with a Yale degree in my pocket. He's yeah. like, I'd rather just get started. Was that kind of how you felt too, that you didn't, to you, it was like, if you're not going to make the top levels, you didn't really want to grind it out and do that to your body in some of the lower level leagues. Well, that's, that's a great, great question. And that, I, I think, honestly, man, that is the hardest question that players who are playing the minors have to ask themselves. Right. And they ask themselves at all summer. They ask themselves at all season when things aren't going well in particular, you're going, what am I doing? And if you, you know, if you finish university, particularly if you're walking out of Yale and you're whatever, I don't know how young your brother was when he went 23, when he's finished, let's call it. When he's walking out of there roughly around that age, um, you know, let's say he goes and plays in the minors for six or seven years and doesn't make it. He's no further ahead in terms of starting his life after hockey than if he starts at 23. So it's, it's almost, you're convincing yourself it's wasted years, right? Like, so to me, I was, you know, I got hurt. Um, I think it was my, it was actually my 26th birthday the day it happened. And I was like, I can definitely play at this level and maybe above until I'm 28, 29, 30. But then what? You know, it's the same thing. You've got to start fresh in your life outside of hockey at some point. And I think that's, you know, an intelligent, uh, intelligent decision at some point and just being honest with yourself and saying, all right, I'm going to have to make a name in media. And, you know, for me now, it's been, you know, 10 years. And had I started five years later, you know, I don't think that I would have had the success I've had on the media side had I waited that long. So I'm very happy with the decision I made at that time. It's a fascinating thing, you know, like you said, just weighing those options. Like you said, every year in the weight, in, every summer in the weight room, do I want to do another side of this, you know, or should I pick up that call to the finance guy or whatever who said, you know, come interview with me. It's, it's really an interesting thing. We're talking with Justin Bourne here. Uh, Justin writes for The Athletic, uh, among some other things in media. Let's transition over to the NHL a little bit. That was fun, kind of getting your background and talking a little bit about some of the issues uh, facing young players coming up. Uh, 
we are halfway through the NHL season, and I'm just curious. Give me two or three things that have sort of fascinated you the most about the season so far. What has just kind of jumped out to you and made you interested in this first half of the season? A couple things. Well, I, I think the you know number one, the biggest thing for me is how much the game has changed, like how quickly from, say, five years ago to three years ago to now, where you know, the value of toughness used to be, you know, so it's such a, you know, premium and everyone, you know, the, the Maple Leafs themselves three or four years ago here in Toronto, you know, having Orr and McLaren and Jay Rosehill and all the rest of those guys. So away and then everyone kind of made this collective decision, like, you know, tough guys don't matter, you know, it's okay. It's a skill game now. And I really thought it was awesome. And this is, I'm the only person who thinks Tom Wilson is awesome. Uh, I think right now, outside of capital spans, but it was awesome to me how he changed games en route for them to win the Stanley cup. Like, Oh yeah. Like if you have a guy who can play, who's also super tough, uh, there's still an inherent value in that. And, you know, the league is such a copycat league and we see it, uh, it sort of bounce back and forth. You know, what are people having uh, success with? And this year we're looking at the trade deadline and, you know, names like Michael Furland and Wayne Simmons are at the top of the list because everyone's looking for someone who can score and also be tough again. So uh, I just think the most interesting dynamic to me has been the way the league has shifted. And then can you beat that, um, which is what the Toronto Maple Leafs here again in Toronto are trying to do with, you know, the, the Mitch Marners of the world and really without any physicality to their team at all. Um, I'm interested to see how that uh, duality sort of plays out in the end. Let's talk about the Leafs real quick. What do you think about the Nylander situation and what's gone wrong with him since he's come back from from his holdout and signing that contract? Is it the case of a player who got his his head so far into something that he normally doesn't and got so far away from his routine and his rhythm that he just hasn't been able to find out on the ice? Or what do you think is going wrong with Nylander being there firsthand and watching him play? I think it's a lot of different things at once, which is, you know, tough for people to accept. They want that clean answer. Like, once he gets in shape, he'll be fine, or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Certainly, initially, the fitness thing is a big thing, uh, just getting back to game speed. And when you jump into, you know, I really compare it to being on a treadmill at the start of the season. You know, starting training camp, thing warms up, and you kind of get moving and itself up to a full run um he jumped on well the thing was you know it was flying and so that's not not easy but also you know suddenly there's a lot of pressure on you when you're losing an entry-level contract level of money and anything you contribute as a bonus people love you all of a sudden you make seven million a year and they're going you know okay you know we, we need to see it every night we, we have expectations now and um and then when things don't start particularly well I'm sure, well, I can't speak for him, but I would get in my own head and start to, you know, as they say, squeeze this desk and start to get, you know, feel the pressure and overthink things. And I really think it's just been a snowball of negativity. I don't think he's any different than what we initially thought he was. I think he'll score a bunch. Uh, I thought he looked great last game. Um, I think he'll get comfortable and things will be fine. But I think the easing back into to everything has been very hard for him. Sportscasters here with Justin Bourne from The Athletic senior writer there Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Atlantic division it's been really good this year obviously the Sabres have sort of had the wind out of their sails the last month or so uh, so that maybe helps a little bit but one thing I know for sure is that when we get to the uh, the spring there's going to be two teams in round one with a lot of points playing Uh, 
how do you see this division breaking down a little bit? We got at least, you know, at least Tampa Bay, Boston, Toronto in the playoffs, and Montreal and Buffalo could both make it, or neither, or one of the two. Uh, what do you think about the uh, the division and kind of how it's going to play out the rest of the way? Well, it's kind of depressing a little bit if you're uh, a Leafs fan looking at it because you're almost certainly slotted into that two-three uh, playoff series. You know, Montreal and Buffalo, uh, you know, they both made nice strides this year and exceeded expectations to some degree. I just don't see it. I just don't see them on the same plane. So I still sort of see that Tampa, uh, Toronto, and Boston is the one-two-three, and then. To be honest, if I'm looking at it, I don't think that Toronto's good enough to beat Boston in the seven-game play- playoff series, and maybe that is mentality. It just seems like Boston absolutely has Toronto's number. Um, their top line it just can't be contained, and David Pasternak absolutely owns the Leafs right now. Uh, yeah, for whatever reason, it just seems to be a major mental hurdle there. That said, I do expect there to be changes um, You know, coming up uh, before the deadline. Uh, you know, I read a rumor today about Wayne Simmons maybe going to Boston. I know Toronto has interest in a uh, defenseman and maybe a left winger. Um, so it's really tough to sort of prognosticate what's going to happen. But I think everyone knows where they stand, and so they stand very closely. And whoever makes, you know, the, the best improvement over the next month here probably has the best chance. So to me, it's as interesting as, well, maybe not as interesting as a playoff round, but I love to watch how teams shape themselves uh, prepare for that playoff round. You know, 1993 is a number up north that, that looms large as the Cup hasn't been there since then. And you look across the country, and there's three of the top, I don't know, 12-ish teams in the league, maybe even better than that, that are up in Canada with Calgary, Winnipeg, and Toronto this year. How important do you think this spring is for, for Canada? Is, is that something that, that bothers Canadians, that, that the, cup, the Canadian team hasn't won a Cup since 93, or... Uh, you know, <laughs> you, see, you know what? I think that's actually a major uh, sort of misconception in the U.S. Just because, you know, because in, so many Canadian players. Well, no, not not so much that. So oh. much as the Canadian teams hate each other more than anyone else. It's okay. like when you have, <laughs> right. you know, like rivals that are uh, sort of associated, like you know, Pittsburgh and Philly or the Islanders and Rangers. You know, by principle, just location, they hate each other. Like, logically, you're all New Yorkers. You should all like each other. But no, it's that location thing. And um, being Canadian is sort of a binding identity. We're all Canadian. So I want my Canadian team to be better than your Canadian. You know, we're not proximal in the slightest bit, like, by pure location. However, there is that shared identity. So I would say, you know, more people from Vancouver hate uh, Toronto than any other fan base going. Like, there's just... No, like if Vancouver wins, no one in Toronto is happy. So it'd be nice to see Canada win the cup a little bit more, just for the good of Canadian cities and, and all that. But when it comes to pure fandom, I think most teams fans think that other Canadian teams can go screw themselves. Yeah, and I see that right. I mean, you got the Battle of Alberta. You know, you have Calgary and yeah. Vancouver. People still trolling each other over overtime goals from the '80s and the '90s in the playoffs. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. I mean that '94 Calgary. Vancouver was at three straight overtime losses to go from three, one to out for Calgary. And then they had to watch Vancouver. I think Martin Jelena scored them all too. It was devastating. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Bray scored game. <laughs> Bray scored game seven on that beautiful regroup. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. Beautiful regroup. And then the breakaway, a uh, couple more things and I'll let you go. Um, generational superstars, right? That's one of those words that we toss around almost every draft. Um, and whether or not you believe all these players who've come in, in the last few years are generational superstars or not. There's certainly a really great influx of young players in the league. 
uh, you know, stars like Matthews and McDavid and Eichel and Lane and Marner. And I mean, we could go on and on. What do you think about these young players in the league and kind of how, like you mentioned earlier, how they're kind of changing the game a little bit and the way it's played and um, how important you think these guys are to the growth and development of the game? Well, they're it. They're central to it. You know, part of me wonders if they aren't too talented, uh, you know, that it kind of your casual fan can't appreciate them. Like, they're seriously, they're so good. It's it's tough to explain to people, uh, particularly the way they shoot the puck, you know, the, the release and the way it comes off their stick and their, their poise, their, their confidence that is so far beyond confidence. It's blatant arrogance. Like, to play the way these guys play and make the decisions they make. I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. So that, that's going to be a thing that draws people to hockey is is watching that. And I hope people can see just truly how special they are. And uh, I think you see a lot of the guys who are superstars in the NHL who are on the other end of being superstars. Patrick Martin comes to mind right off the top is they see these guys and they're like, oh, oh like that's different. Like it's a different game. These kids have come up with like training since they were – young training all summer they had one piece sticks and proper flex their whole lives um they're starting to do some things in a different way and i think it's good for the evolution of hockey it seems like a safer game uh scoring is up and you know for me there's, there's really no negatives to, to what's happening so it's just a, a really fun time in the nhl which is also great to hear that it doesn't sound like there's any intention of a future labor stoppage if you could keep this momentum going i think it would be huge for the game all right, one last thing. I'll let you out of here on this. We kind of talked about what interested you in the first 40 games. I know you're excited to see how the deadline plays out. Besides that, what are the stories you'll be tracking personally the most in the next 40 games as we close in on the playoffs? Well, for, for me, I have my own biases. And one of my favorite things about sports media today is um, getting to be honest enough that you care about things in particular. And I think in the past it was like, you know, no cheering in the press box, and I still support that concept. But I have my horses, you know, which is the New York Islanders who just continue to surge uh, in the East, and can they make some noise? The Toronto Maple Leafs seem to be going through some malaise, but, you know, I work for the organization, and I want to see um, if they're able to sort of figure things out. Uh, and then, they, as you mentioned, the Canadian teams, can, uh, can Winnipeg or Calgary, you know, can they make some noise? So um, everything that I'm watching for is completely self-motivated and narcissistic but that's just where i I'm at. <laughs> <laughs> i like it uh justin writes for the athletic uh, he's a senior writer there why don't you uh, lay out any other plugs you want to twitter uh, where people can read you watch you all those things yeah yeah the athletic um you know the athletic uh, nhl also my twitter handle is at jt born and uh you can listen to me every monday on uh, sportsnet fan 590 at three o'clock Justin, this was fun. Thanks for taking us down uh, memory lane through your hockey development and talking a little bit of NHL with me. Uh, Hopefully we can do it again soon. For sure, man. Thanks for having me.
I have to thank Mike Carrington for being on the podcast today, and of course, Justin Bourne, who I believe is the first person uh, to appear on two straight episodes. Of course, it's the same interview, but uh, it just made sense to me to to do it that way and, and to play them both uh, today. The Sportscasters, of course, this is season nine, episode two, and you can find today's episode and all of our episodes of this fantastic award-winning podcast, according to The Athletic and Sports Illustrated, or maybe award-winning isn't the right word, maybe critically acclaimed podcast, according to The Athletic in 2018 and Sports Illustrated in 2014. You can find all these episodes on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can always send me a tweet at sports underscore casters and email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Don't forget about greetings from Allentown, the greatest one-man wrestling podcast ever. 100 episodes deep. Congratulations to my friend and podcast partner, Peter Winson. Uh, that podcast, of course, if you want more information on that, you can find it at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter. Uh, and all of these podcasts, mine, Greetings from Allentown, can be found on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, wherever, wherever you find podcasts, they're there. Uh, Stitcher. And if you have a problem finding my podcast, uh, email me, thesportscasters at gmail.com, and I'll fix that right away. I've done it before. Also, the Adams Division Podcast, a podcast I do with Peter Winson. Uh, we'll have a new episode very shortly, uh, within the week or two, on Royal Rumbles 1988 to 1998. Peter and I rank them. We've done this for SummerSlam, WrestleMania, and Survivor Series. So that gimmick is up. It'll be interesting uh, to see when we do episode uh, number six of the Adams Division podcast, what direction we take it. Uh, Peter and I have some ideas that we've kicked down the road. We'll see what happens, but keep your eye out on our Twitters uh, at GF Allentown Pod and at Sports underscore Casters for more information about the next edition of the Adams Division podcast. Also, I wanted to mention a good friend of mine, uh, Eric Hawk and Jason Flowers, uh, the guys formerly of the Buffalo Wings, now Western New York Roller Hockey League. Uh, Eric reached out to me. He had checked out the podcast. And uh, he's really just digging it. Eric and I actually did a podcast uh, for Western New York Roller Hockey way back in the summer of 2008. No, summer of 2009 we did it. And it was actually really cool. Uh, we had people from his, his leagues uh, on. It was, I thought, a really cool podcast. We did that that year. It was a lot of fun. And Eric and Jason have been really, really great guys, friends to me for a long time. They've put up with my antics and uh, had my teams in their leagues and I told Eric that I'd be more than glad to uh, read a promo for him or two and of course I would be more than glad to uh, have him on so he's going to be on sometime in February just to kind of tell his story it's a really interesting one kind of a punk kid uh, when I first met him when we were like 18 in 1998 who played for the, the, the Buffalo Wings Went on to run the thing, and now he's got like an empire. He runs volleyball leagues, ice hockey camps, roller hockey leagues, and even cornhole. Uh, so we're going to get his story. I think it's interesting. Uh, and if it's not, I mean, what do we lose? One segment of one show. Uh, so I'm, ex- I'm actually really excited to do it. Uh, the first thing is the spring development camps. 
the Western New York School of Hockey Ice Development Camp. Uh, their spring camps begin April 16th at the Northtown Center. Uh, you can check WNYSOH.com or call Eric Hawk at 716-903-2658 for more info. Um, really, it's a great camp. Uh, I, I really, really think it's worth your while. Uh, they pledge to teach both the physical and mental toughness of the game, all while creating a fun and inviting atmosphere. Uh, again, it's April 16th. It starts at the Northtown Center, WNYSOH.com, or call Eric, 716-903-2658. Also, uh, the Western New York Roller Hockey League, Summer Hockey, right around the corner. Uh, registration for the Summer League starts on April 26th. If you want more information for that, it's WNYRH.com. Uh, it is Without a doubt, the best summer roller hockey league in Western New York, uh, as long as you can put up with the officiating. Uh, it's just a fantastic league. Uh, Eric and, and Jason do a great job. Uh, and it, it's, I mean, it's an honor for me to, to just plug this for them because they've been great to me over the years. Uh, my teams have won a few championships there. Uh, I want to say we've won four, four, three or four championships there and um it's first class all the way uh eric bus has asked to create not just uh not just a thing where you dump 125 bucks you show up and you play a game and you leave there's atmosphere and ambiance and music and players of the month and banners and a beautiful trophy and pictures and facebook live and it's really a fantastic league so if you're at all interested in getting a roller hockey team together for the summer uh, again the uh, registration starts on april 26th and it's wnyrh.com for more information on that uh paula is here let's see what paula's got to say today say hello to everyone baby hello baby hello baby what did we get in the mail yesterday hulk hogan video games, hulk hogan video games? Yeah. did we watch any of them today yeah. yeah who's hulk hogan's best friend Mr. T? All right. So that's a quick update from Paula. One last thing. I wanted to give a quick update or a quick review of the Bob Seger concert that I went to, uh, I guess, about two weeks ago now. Uh, Bob Seger played the uh, the arena, the Key Bank Center, we call it now. It's had like six or seven names. And uh, Bullet Bob played. And I had went to the show in Rochester about a year ago, and it was an awesome show i remember just leaving thinking i gotta find a way to see this guy one more time because at the time he was promoting it as a a farewell tour so i wanted to get to another one and then what happened was he got some kind of injury he needed surgery canceled it but he was so excited with how everything was going that he said fuck it i'm gonna do a whole tour uh and buffalo was one of the dates and i knew i had to go so i woke up the day of Bought a ticket, about a hundred bucks. Beautiful ticket, side stage. I was practically on the stage. Uh, if you go to my tw- uh, my Instagram at uh, Sportscasters on Instagram, you can see a video of Night Moves uh, from the uh, from the show there. And yeah, Night Moves. You know Night Moves, right, Paula? Yeah. Working on the Night Moves. Can you sing? Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I posted that video on there, and um, this show was not nearly as good as the Rochester show, and there's one reason, and it's the crowd. The crowd was an absolute humiliation. Listen, I get it. It's an older crowd. It was a Thursday night. People worked on Thursday. They had to work on Friday. But man, was this crowd dead. When I say dead, I mean dead. It was brutal with a capital B. I mean, look at you're tired, you're old, right? You stink. But Bob Seeger's 73 years old, and he rocked his ass off all night. And these lame idiots, who I'm embarrassed to say are Buffalonians, couldn't even stand up for Hollywood nights. It's like, you got to be kidding me. You know, like put a little energy into the show. It was awful. The crowd was awful. I was so embarrassed to even be a part of it. I mean, it's the encore. A 73-year-old man, he's still rocking his ass off. You know that he's probably never playing again. And you're on your ass during Hollywood nights and rock and roll never forgets. It's like stand up and show the guy a little energy. I was so embarrassed. It was so bad. It was maybe the worst crowd I've ever been ever seen at a rock show it was so so bad um as for bob he was great the band was great the set list was great they played shame on the moon which is a favorite song of mine that they hadn't played at rochester or the other show that i went to in 1995 at the odd uh the one song that i think did there was two things that got the crowd excited one was turn the page really popped the crowd and then the other was when he played a song called Forever Young by Bob Dylan. On the screen behind him, he was putting up pictures of recently passed away rock stars. He actually dedicated it to Glenn Fry of the Eagles, who was a really good friend of his. And for some reason, people loved to cheer like every single time. Like Tom Petty came up, it was like huge cheer, you know, like all this energy. You know, then Bob Seeger plays, you know, I don't know. Rambling Gambling Man, and it's just, like, dead. But uh, Bob was great. He can still sing. For a 73-year-old guy, his voice is just unbelievable. And the band was really good. Um, the mix of the sax. I mean, there's a ton of a ton of people on the stage with them. And uh, they all really play a great part. The backing singers. And one really cool thing about Bob is he's... If, if there's a oh or a yeah or like at night in night moves as it ends all the the scatting he does he sings all that word for word and he's got it on a teleprompter in front of him and it's just awesome and he busts his ass and if Bob Seeger is coming to a city near you on this farewell tour check it out because he is great and if you do go don't be a bump on the log like these assholes in Buffalo were because uh, they really just took away from from the from the show, and you could tell Bob sensed it and was frustrated. But uh, check out my Instagram at Sportscasters, uh, just at Sportscasters for more information on that. We'll see you next time. Face the path.